I was scared of the pain that came with trust. I'm still scared of the pain that comes with trust. As we walk into a season of Lent coming up, we're going to challenge this campus on a few different fronts. It's here where I want to spend most of our time. The places where we're most scared of letting go and of, of offering more of ourselves in a place of trust. Places where we've never been yet. Places where Jesus was trying to lead the disciples. We're going to look at a text that talks about that today. And before we do, will you ask God to guide us in that study along with me? Let's pray. Jesus, teach us. Teach us to have an open heart. Teach us what it means to hear you aright. We ask that you would cut through our presuppositions, our ego, our sin, the places where we are bound. Show us the potentials and possibilities of new freedoms that can only come when we're fully surrendered to you. Jesus, have your way, and however you want that to mean. Amen. I remember one time as a kid, we were driving over to my aunt and uncle's house, and my mom wanted to prep us well because my cousin had just lost her little hamster. Hamster had died, and this was the first time a pet in her life had died, and so parents wanted to take advantage of this situation, so they went in the backyard, and they went through this whole burial process in order to teach the children about what it's like to experience death, knowing they'd never been to a funeral before or anything like that, so we were all kind of wondering how we're going to ask the question when we get there to follow up, and I get in, and I ask my cousin Tanya, so what happened to Cindy, the hamster? We planted her! was the response. Having no framework whatsoever for death or an understanding of burial, her only way to process what had happened to the hamsters, we went in the backyard like we did in this every spring with plants, and we planted Cindy. We planted the dead hamster. Now, I don't know if she was expecting a hamster tree to come up later that year or what was going to happen, but she didn't have a framework for death. In a way, as similarly, and we often forget this because we're reading history backwards, the disciples who are listening to Jesus' words do not have a framework for the possibility of a resurrection. So every time he starts talking about the the Son of Man is going to have to suffer, everything inside of them just rails against that. There's nothing inside of them, there's nothing of their history that teaches them that you can actually win by losing. That doesn't make sense. Look at the Pax Romana marching across the ancient world. The Pax Christi is going to come in a whole lot different, but there's no framework for it yet. We pick up the story right now in the Gospel of John after the A triumphal entry we looked at last week, and I want to read through this text in the next following verses of what happens now as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the pace of the story begins to pick up in the passion narrative that we're going to look at through the season of Lent coming up next week. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. 
Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father, my father will honor the one who serves me. But now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. But the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When you've finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So as the passage starts off, these two Greek individuals come to, or they come to the disciples and, and say, we want to see Jesus. And what's interesting in the rest of this text is that they never actually even get their question answered. The disciples go off in a game of telephone in order to pass the message on to Jesus. There's these people who want to see you. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm free at 3.30 on Wednesday, so that would work really well. As is so often the case, Jesus doesn't answer the question. And what are they supposed to do with that? But why wouldn't they want to see Jesus? Anybody here ever taken a selfie with a famous person? You ever walked into a room and realized that one of the first things your eyes do is it sizes up the room to see who the most important or prettiest or most famous or richest person is in the room, and we pay them a little extra attention? Regardless of what we believe about the kingdom of God and the stories we tell about mustard seeds and lost coins and lost sheep, Christians still operate on this principle that works really well in the world that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And who doesn't want to be in close proximity to power? They've seen Jesus on the stage, right? They've seen Jesus in front of the crowds. Now that's somebody I want to get to know. And so they want to see him. And maybe there's nothing even wrong with wanting to see what is this all about. But Jesus knows that in order for them to truly see him, to truly see what he needs them to see about him, they're going to have to see a little differently. And so, as is so often the case, he goes into a story. Do a little activity with me for a minute and just close your eyes. Don't even think, just the first five stories of Jesus that come to mind for you. The first five. 
Run through them real quick in your mind's eye. Go ahead and open your eyes. See, what I would want to challenge each one of us as I did this activity this week was thinking that the things that I quickly think the most about about Jesus probably are going to inform my discipleship a ton because our Christology will always determine our discipleship. If Jesus is the one that we're following, what we think about him, how we view him, who he is in our life will determine the very next step that we take. And so if our stories and the person of Jesus that we're always constructing and focusing on in our mind is an exalted Christ or one teaching in front of the crowd, then we always have sort of this lifted up Christ. But what Jesus needs these men to see and what he needs the world to see and keeps talking about is one who will be lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross first. And if our Christology will always determine our discipleship, then it really makes a difference on what we see when we see Jesus. I want to see Jesus, they said. What Jesus do you think they wanted to see? This is his answer. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If it dies, this might be one of the biggest ifs in the entire Bible. This is the Jesus that the Greeks need to see. All this buildup and, and, the, and, the, and the crowds that line the streets and the palm branches and the dreams of messianic deliverance, all of this stuff, the spectacle that everybody wanted, the two point whatever million Jews who would have been in Jerusalem, the nervousness in the Roman guards as all of this was happening, the, the dreams of, of years past when we would not live in shame anymore, but we would be exalted to a place conquered by the point of the sword and this God who would be with his army again. This is what they're all dreaming about. And Jesus says, no, 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 if it dies, not if it wins, if it dies. I think every single one of us as followers of Jesus has to acknowledge that there's a part in our flesh that wants a theological workaround to this if. I don't want that part of it to be true. Because then what does that mean for me? We've been trying to work our way around this as Christians for 2,000 years. We keep trying to fashion a Christianity that sanctions our American dreams, one made in our own image. But what we really need is the Christianity of self-surrender, the one that dismantles them. We need the monstrosity of the cross. We need to understand how significant it is that we need to die to ourselves to lay our agendas aside. Every single time you and I, out of our flesh, come before God and close our eyes and pray, we are throwing more often than not our aspirations on God and kind of telling Him, we got an idea, I, God, I got this idea of what I need you to do right now. It's kind of like me whispering to God, being like, I got a plan, and this is how I need you to do it and how it's got to go. And I'm not that different from the disciples who all wanted the same Casting and projecting their aspirations for what they wanted. A path of least resistance in all of their conversations and hopes that they pinned upon Jesus. Preparing for land, I was reading through a book by Richard Rohr this week, Simplicity. He's a Franciscan contemplative. 
And he talks about the difference as we approach this sort of topic of following Jesus, the difference between self-sacrifice and self-control. He says, we want self-control, and not like the fruit of the Spirit self-control. We want self-control like I chose in my dignity with a well-protected face and a good reputation for my family to move this direction in which good Christians look good in the world. But self-sacrifice is what Jesus is looking for and what Jesus models. And opening up to possibilities. Jesus dies in order to create possibilities for others. And I think so often what we want is a workaround so that we don't have to suffer. God, I want to have a, a good life so I can influence other people. But are any of us praying, God, if you need to wreck me, if it means somebody else gets in in the kingdom of God? If you need to tear my life apart so that the kingdom of God would go forward, I'm all in. And I don't need dignity. I want to become undignified. And I'm going to take my lifelong to-do list of wealth and success and comfort and everything that I've embedded in that, and I will lay it aside because I want to look like Jesus. We're afraid of the pain that comes with trust. We're terrified of it. Every last one of us is. This text teaches us that even Jesus was afraid of it. His soul was troubled. Translated otherwise, tormented. Horrified. Jesus knows what it's like for you to be in that moment. Jesus is in that moment with you and he experienced it to a degree even greater than any of us ever will. So all of those moments when we're tempted to self-protect, to self-dignify. Jesus wants to meet you in that moment and teach you self-sacrifice. To become a witness for him. Everybody's talking about the great falling away in the church right now. I really do believe at the end of the day it's because we are more interested in having a clean and polished version and a Christianity that we kind of is nice and it's just sort of just enough to eke into the kingdom of God, but we're not praying for a life wrecked by Jesus. We don't actually want our lives to become the platform of witness to the Christ who dies on a cross. We want it somehow redeemed and we want to do this from the positions of power and not from the places in the margins. We want to talk about how God could justify my wealth and not God's presence among the poor. We want to talk about all the ways that we can do that and sort of save face and be on the winning team because that's where we want to sit. The Greek word throughout the New Testament for a witness to Jesus is martyrios. It's translated both witness and martyr. Do you understand what this means? That the very word for giving witness to the resurrection came, became synonymous with dying for doing it. You couldn't tell it apart in the way that they use the word almost interchangeably in the New Testament. But ever since the Edict of Milan in 313, when Constantine creates the position of privilege and power for Christianity in the Western world for 1,700 years, we've been enjoying that in the Western part of creation. Position of privilege and power and our own frameworks for seeing this part of the gospel truly are broken. It's exemplified so many different ways. One of my favorite stories, of course, is Ivan the Great's version of this. As he's rising to power in Russia in the 15th century, and then he 
um, his, all those, his advisors around him are telling him, we're too busy fighting wars, we need to find a wife for you. So he agrees to one sight unseen to come from Greece and sets this all up. He's going to have this marriage and this union and this political affiliation uh, with Greece and expand his kingdom. And he, marry, he agrees to marry this woman sight unseen. And But the, the Greeks say, well, actually you have to become Greek Orthodox in order to do it. So they send him an emissary who gives him a crash course in their catechism so he can agree to it. And then he says, well, then we better do this also with my soldiers. So it takes 500 of his top soldiers and assigns a one-to-one 500 Greek Orthodox priest for every one soldier. So they can do a one-to-one catechism crash course and then meet on the beach of the Mediterranean and have a baptism moment of 1,000 of them standing in the blue water of the Mediterranean with 500 who will go under and become soldiers. But in that moment, you realize, wait a second, there's a problem. You can't be a killer and be baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church at that moment in history. So um, a little bit of diplomacy takes place on the beach and a solution is resolved and 500 soldiers figure out how to get baptized with their swords standing up in the air and everything except from here falls under the lordship of Jesus. But you see, that's not really a new trick. Remember the story of Achan from the Old Testament? Or Ananias and Sapphira in the New or whatever it is that you didn't want Jesus to see last week in your own life. We keep wanting to do this. We keep wanting to say in all of our Christianese, Jesus have it all, but we all keep holding on to these places. And this is what my season of Lent is for, my friends, where we can come back and remind ourselves about cruciform living, about what it means to give up ourselves and our ambitions, to truly say, Jesus have it all. Like, Holy Spirit, I want you to point out in my life the places where I'm still holding my hand above the water and I've not given it to you yet. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. You see how clear the language is here? If we love this part of our life and we can't let it go and we won't let Jesus have it, the risk is astronomical. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's how Jesus says it in Mark 8. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Oh my goodness, do I not wish that this passage was not in the Bible. That the first step in becoming a Christian, the first step of discipleship is deny yourself. You will have ambitions. You will have things born out of your flesh that want things for itself. You will be, by its very nature, selfish when you wake up tomorrow. So we've got to enter into this process of daily dying to ourselves. And it starts with denial, self-denial. And notice it doesn't say anyone who hates their life like some sort of masochist, but hates their life in this world. Like, you can't attach your loves to the things of this world because it's going to orient your heart that way. Like, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's another way to translate this done elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. But whoever serves me must follow me. So Jesus is working the way of, to finally answering this question. Can we see Jesus? And basically, Jesus is asking all of them back, I don't know, can you? Can you see what I'm all about and not what you want me to be about? Can you see past your own ambitions and enter into this and enter into me and what I want for you the way I want it for you? And Jesus says it himself this moment, my soul is troubled. 
Friends, Jesus needs you to know this line. That for all the places where you and I keep holding on, he has been there and he is there in the middle of it. I don't know what your soul is troubled by. I don't know where your discipleship keeps feeling like it hits a ceiling. I don't know where the places are where you actually don't dare pray about. Or the ones that you've already resigned. They just exist, they exist in another part. I wrote that part off. Jesus had to go through this process to conquer the worst thing in life, death itself, to show us that after that, everything else is possible. That's the point of the gospel story and why it has to be this way. And you and I have to figure out a way to get this lived out in the rest of our life. At the end of that chapter, Richard Rohr says it like this, Jesus coming, the incarnation actually had nothing to do with theology. It was rather about vulnerability, about letting go, about emptiness, about self-surrender, and none of that is in the head. Maybe actually it's true. It's not about what you know, it's about who you know. If you know who the who is. Because all the transformation that you and I long for in this world all come not in close proximity to power, but in close proximity to Jesus. And if there's anything in your life that you can't stand right now, I dare you to get a little closer to Jesus because he probably wants to wreck it good and proper. The monstrosity of the cross does that for us. And Jesus himself says, I get it, it's terrifying. I too was afraid of the pain that comes with trust. But what would happen if a campus decided to allow God to have three more percent of its life over a season of Lent? What could happen with that? What if we got really daring and audacious and everybody here decided to pray, God, I'm going to give you 10% more than whatever you've had before, and I want you to show me what those things are. What could happen? I don't know how to answer that question. That's the best part about it because Jesus' imagination is so much better than mine. But I want to ask the question. In the next six weeks, I'm going to be challenging you to ask that question with me. And I'll be sending you some emails and inviting you into some studies. And John, Sam, me, and Tanner Smith over the next several weeks are going to teach in chapel as we walk through the farewell discourse about what it means to enter into this in all its totality. I'm inviting the band to come up forward. They're going to give us some time and space to respond uh, in song. And we kind of did that more after this message because I want space. Because that's what Lent is for. That's what cruciform living is all about. Creating space for God to speak to us in the ways that he did. In the ways that he wants to. Often on Wednesday mornings, I, I walk through um, these pews and I just sort of pray over these spaces before we gather. And what I had in my head the whole time as I was praying this morning, just sort of asking God to minister to each one of us, was just, um, I had this image of, of God like a lover does to someone whose attention they want. And they, and they take, their, take their index finger and they just kind of lift their chin, you know, like, like look at me. Can you feel the Spirit telling you, just look at me. I, I got more to show you yet. I don't think you've seen all of me. You want to see Jesus? Let's pray. Father, teach us about your presence. Teach us about surrender. Do inside of us what we long for so badly, and yet we're so afraid to do, to let you have it all. Overtake us overcome us. 
at any and every cost to ourselves, to our ambitions, to our self-protection, to our selfishness. For this is the rightful place that you must have in our life. Have your way. Amen. Please stand and sing.